Unidentified Klingon vessel. This is Captain Filippo Jojo of the USS Sanjo. We are on the outermost borders of Federation space. But make no mistake, you and your artifact are in our territory. We regret the situation has resulted in the death of your warrior. We offer you two choices. Leave immediately or open a dialogue with us. Hopefully it is the latter so that we can re-engage with the Klingon Empire and prove to you that now, as always, we come in peace. Hey everybody, welcome to Trek Trudge Discovery. Is that the title? That's that's the title. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. It could be. Maybe Trek Trudge Trek Trudge Disco Inferno. <laughs> My name is Byron Hussey, and I am joined by James Sheaves. Hi. Hi James. Thanks for joining. No problem. So this is a um, a new program in the Trek Trudge family, and it is unique in that it relates to new content as opposed to uh, old content. Is that correct? That is correct. This is, in fact, a new show. It's a new show. Brand new on the air right now on CBS All Access. Which oh, uh, yeah. I think we're going to, are we going to talk about the format? Like whether or not it's a good idea to silo content behind a um, hundred different paywalls. Yeah. You'll, you'll never guess what our decision is on that front. <laughs> I think it's a bad idea. Um, but probably, probably enough people are talking about that. Maybe we just get stick with like some takes on the actual content of the show. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I got plenty of those. Okay. So Star Trek Discovery um, is set before, 10 years before Star Trek, the original series. Dangerously Um, close. And it is about a first officer named Michael Burnham. The, what is it? The USS Shenzhou? The USS Shenzhou. Shenzhou. Captained by Philippa, Philippa Georgiou. Georgiou. Yeah. Is, is that a French name? It does seem to be a French name, and I was I was wondering with Zachary why uh, it would be this way for the very Asian Michelle Yeoh, and uh, the thought was maybe it's something to do with Malaysia, but then the the other thought was that doesn't make any sense. Because right. she's she's Malaysian Chinese, I think. Is this an homage to Captain Picard, who has a French think, name but British accent? Yeah, that's probably the more plausible explanation. You know, it's an international cast of international characters. Just mixing up different accents and ethnicities, nationalities, just all just in a in a big pot. Yeah. So um, and Michael Burnham is a um, 
uh, an African-American woman, probably African-American is not no longer the correct nomenclature in the, uh, what, 20, 22nd century? Hmm. Well, I can't imagine what they would call it. Yeah. It's just a person of color. She's a person of Her name is Michael, which is traditionally a male name, at least in this time period. Yeah. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Well, presumably we'll get some uh, reason for it. I guess it's just, oh, her father wanted a boy. Right. Maybe. Or maybe she had a brother who died in utero or as an infant. Twin brother that she killed in utero and stole his name. Just sort of like a uh, futury, weird futury thing. I mean, it's not weird, I guess. Like weird, that's like normative in some way that i'm not trying to i'm not trying to be that way it suits her i think <laughs> i mean it's it's interesting how i i mean i've heard some discussion about this show and it comes up but it's it's not like a big point of contention no i don't i don't think any of the fanboys are griping over the name michael yeah so michael burnham is the first officer on the Shenzhou and um the the um sh- the series opens with a um an away mission with um Philippa Giorgio and Michael Burnham um sort of rescuing a an alien species um mm. what did you think of this uh the the opening for the series for it the was series? um very cute uh, visually. Um, and the thing with Burnham that I noted in this sequence when I first watched it was that she seems to be very smart in some ways and very dumb in other ways, which I think is possibly deliberate in that they're trying to show her as having a certain sort of inexperience in spite of her clear mm-hmm. like skill at what she does. So she, really? she does the old star trek of thing of like oh i precisely predict that we're you know a a thousand paces or whatever from this and we need this exact frequency of phaser burst and whatever but then she fails to predict that there's a storm that's gonna like engulf them and so it's like Mm -hmm. that combination of oh she knows this to the nth degree but she just misses these huge things so she she does the old Star Trek of thing of like, oh, I precisely predict that we're, you know, a, th- a thousand paces or whatever from this and we need this exact frequency of phaser burst and whatever. But then she fails to predict that there's a storm that's going to like engulf them. And so it's like mm-hmm. that combination of, oh, she knows this to the nth degree, but she just misses these huge things. Possibly not how I would have written it. Um and so they mention General Order 1 in here. I think this is an instance of um, it, clearly in a previous draft, they mentioned the Prime Directive and then they realized, oh, wait, Prime Directive wasn't the same thing at this point in the timeline, so we've got to change it. Just right. like how they had Harrison Ford say in the first draft of, uh, or in one of the drafts of The Force Awakens, he says, oh, I knew we should have double-checked the Outer Rim for the Millennium Falcon, but uh, that wouldn't make sense because the whole outer rim of the galaxy is, you know, preposterously enormous. And so they, they change it in the final film to the Western Reaches, which is, you know, a smaller part. 
what did you think of the fact that they were on this planet at all? Like, I, I, I did hear some chatter about, like, okay, well, why are they coming down to save this, uh, this particular species? Is that what Starfleet is doing? Um, in this instance, I think it, uh, it's said to be because there was um, side effects from a mining operation that, you know, wrecked right. the water table. Um, in this instance, I think it, uh, it's said to be because there was um, side effects from a mining operation that, you know, wrecked right. the water table. So a pre-warp civilization had an impact. Sorry, a, 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 a warp, post-warp civilization had an impact on this this particular pre-warp civilization. So they feel the need to intervene to save that, that species um, because it was being sort of indirectly impacted by um by a warp, warp what, yeah. what do you call a, a post-warp civilization a, is there a word for that a, a warp a warp boys warp boys um, and warpmen um they don't seem to dwell on it it's not dwelled right. that's not the conflict in this episode mm-hmm. and warpmen um they don't seem to dwell on it it's not dwelled. Right. That's not the conflict in this episode. Mm-hmm. This was um, just like a let's let's hit the ground running, kind of look at these new characters in action, kind of thing. Precisely. Um, and Georgiou, um has has a neat trick for how the ship's going to find them, and it's they walk in the shape of a Starfleet chevron, and mm-hmm. that was a one of the things that struck me as Burnham being a bit dumb because what she wouldn't notice the shape that they were walking in the very deliberate shape um but you know it's all right if it's in service of the you know portraying the character as being inexperienced in some ways and experienced in others that's fine i guess yeah well it's kind of a low-tech solution to a high-tech problem so it's like and that's all the the best starfleet folks kind of mix up these kinds of really high-minded scientific kind of use this warp field and that thing with other like sort of more basic kind of um folksy like oh we uh sour the sour the mother's milk right yeah and and they they do that a few times in this episode so perhaps that will be a recurring theme in the series um mm-hmm. when we see the ship come down to pick them up uh it struck me that it looks like very much like an enterprise era like nx ship uh in terms of like art direction uh which i assume is you know an attempt to tie it into you know canon did you find that that it looked like a um enterprise like the the series yeah the the jonathan archer enterprise yeah yeah i didn't think of it at the time but hindsight I think you are you are correct. Does does resemble. And then, uh, um, upon seeing the ship, we uh, go very quickly to the title sequence. So I guess now's the point for title sequence takes. Um, I guess I don't really like it all that much. It's, you don't it's, like it. It's very different, uh, which mm-hmm. is good. It's good to be different, and it's kind of interesting. But I also think it's it's kind of a fizzle. Maybe like the theme, I wouldn't yeah. say is iconic. What about you? Uh, I I agree. I think um, 
I think they, I think it's very um, in the spirit of kind of peak TV style, almost excessively stylized introductions mm. uh, and sort of kind of maybe trying to set the tone in that direction rather than being sort of the yet another series of ship the ship sweeping through space and planets like yeah. trying to get a little bit more uh, artistic with it uh, but I don't know if this particular uh, this particular set of imagery is is all that uh, yeah. interesting or presumably um, some of it will assume more meaning for us later because it, it just seems to be a few of it the images that are represented just seem to be nonsense. So I guess there's context like will be provided. Flower, I think. Yeah. And I think there's like a brain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I don't, I don't hate it though. No, I don't hate it either. It'll do. It is. It is pretty. Yeah, like, sure. It's, it's certainly well made. Like, I don't know, like the color, like having it be like all almost white. Yeah. Like, like a white and yellow. It's very different. Inversion. And I'll yeah. say I like the typography as well. Uh, they they chose to kern the font very wide, but um, uh, make the line spacing uh, so close that it's in fact touching. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but uh, that is a uh, very modern choice. Yeah. So anyway, um, what we're getting up to you... is oh, you have an additional take. What did you think of the uh, the actual music? Did you think they should have returned to um, Faith of the Heart? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Is that what it's called? Faith of the Heart. Faith of the Heart. Bring it back. Yeah. Bring it back. The um. I mean, the like, Federation's Eurovision entry. <laughs> they they could have. I mean, they could have gone with them in that direction again. Got a sort of popular music act to do. I mean, I don't know if you did Faith I of think... the Heart. Um, like they got Rihanna to do one for Star Trek Beyond, and that absolutely did not work for me. Yeah, I don't remember that, but uh, it doesn't sound very good. Yeah, I've heard the song and I actually don't remember it. Um, uh, so uh, post-title sequence, when we're getting into what we're actually doing, it's the old classic. Oh, you know, a relay's gone down, so we got to send, you know, the Shenzhou out to check it out. And mm-hmm. oh boy, you bet it didn't just stop working on its own. Um, yeah. So at this point, we meet the uh, second officer. I guess he's the second officer, or maybe he's the science officer, Saru, the Kelpian. Yeah. Um, who Big I think is, the episode. is played by the Hellboy guy who plays Abe Sapien. Am I wrong about that? Oh. Um. I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um. He really steals the show, I think. He's he's yeah. a he's a great alien. Yeah, it, it in general it seems like they made an effort to make the aliens look more alien in general mm. in um Discovery. Uh, I guess with the exception of the uh with of the uh the Vulcans. <laughs> right. Not much you can <laughs> but, do. But he, He's a good example of that. He's like very tall uh, and has a very, very distinctive alien features that aren't yeah. just a, a, a wrinkled forehead. And I, and of course the Klingons. 
we can discuss. Right. Yeah. And I specifically noticed that I couldn't tell what race the human performer is. Like, it's not like you see a Klingon and you can go, oh, it's a, you know, it's a white person and they pasted the rubber forehead on, or it's a black person and they pasted the forehead. It's like, I can't tell what this human actually looks like underneath this. All I can see is the alien that they've made. Yeah. And you were right, by the way, he was played, he's played by, uh, Doug Jones, Doug Jones was yeah. in uh, Hellboy. Played the Fishman, Abe Sapien. Um, yeah, and uh, we've got some new uniforms, which I think look really nice. Um, don't really seem to quite make canonical sense to me. I don't mm-hmm. think, because I think uh, the original Star Trek pilot, the Cage. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not huge on this knowledge, but I think it was set around the same time period and it was kind of the same-ish sort of uniform uh, as as the original series and it's set during the similar time period to this series, I think. So canonically, it's making me feel uneasy, but... Yeah. Um, they but, certainly look uh, great. Uh, yeah, I think um, it's it's difficult to reconcile the, the canon with the sort of art direction of this show mm. because they've had to make so many sort of improvements yeah. to bring the technology up to date with what they can do with special effects today. Mm-hmm. And I think we've, we've talked in the past... Um, about sort of how Star Trek, and we might even talk about it in con- the context of like anticipating the show, but how Star yeah. Trek was sort of the, defined to some extent by its own limitations. And yeah. where it's like, you know, or certainly, you know, we had a lot of like just sort of, you know, like aliens with just one forehead wrinkle and, yeah. and like, or like obviously like outdated tricorders and things like that um the assumption is that they would have made it look more futuristic yeah they could have and in fact it was it was always the case that whenever they got more resources they just threw cannon out the window and just went with it like the motion picture klingons suddenly looking completely different it's like it's not like star trek has always had an ironclad commitment to everything being exactly the same all the time um, and I guess so uh, it's not necessarily an excuse because um, I, I think that that showed kind of its own laziness in a way. It's like, oh, who yeah. cares about what we did because we can do something better now. Um, whereas now, uh, I think with Discovery, the, the idea, they're thinking about it a bit more than they, they would have back then. There's a serious effort to, to um, fit this thing in canon. In certain ways which i think we'll get to mm-hmm. but um art direction is is, is yeah d- definitely one that is a bit of a harder yeah. sell. well i i was listening to another podcast about this and like they were really hung up on the fact that they had like holograms like they don't they didn't have holographic look communication i hate to, I hate to disappoint you but i'm i'm hung series. up on that as well <laughs> Just, you you, you you object to that yeah i, I absolutely it's 
so wrong. It's Star Wars holograms in Star Trek. It's so wrong. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. It's it's bad. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess I agree with to some extent, but I, on the other hand, it's sort of like, where do you draw the line? And it's like, it's like if you're going to start improving things all around, mm. like, what difference does it make if you just tweak this one other thing? Like, yeah. who, who's to say? Why not just throw it all out and just say, okay, let's update everything and don't worry about it. <laughs> and um, uh, the, the canonicity conjecture that I came up with was um, maybe holograms became passe, kind of like how video phones, there are video phones yeah. in 2001 A Space Odyssey, and we kind of look back on it and go, oh, that's so quaint. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I think like that's a good explanation. Holograms. But the thing is that, like, if this is a successful series mm. and sort of re- reboots Trek, like re- re- reinvigorates Trek, then presumably it will start working within this universe and maybe there will be another spinoff show set, like, during or after The Next Generation. And they're going to have to update that technology, too. Yeah. And they're going to have to update it with in mind the technology in this show. So you're just moving the bar again, probably. Where it's like, mm. are we going to limit what they did in that thing to the the the, the canon, the the ret, ret, retcons we made for this? Um, maybe the maybe the solution is just not worry about. It. Yeah, well, I know that. But then it's it, so. I'm still going to worry about most, it. I'm I can't stop worrying. Fans. I'm so full of worrying, worries. Um, so that's enough about costumes. Um. Another thing that uh, I think fans are probably griping about that comes up at about this point in the episode is the so-called Roddenberry rule of, like, you know, senior staff members can't have conflicts with each other. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this never applied to this era of the timeline. It only applies to the time period of the next generation onwards because... That was when Roddenberry said, okay, at this point in history, humans have figured out, uh, you know, workplace conflicts and they don't happen anymore because society is sufficiently advanced that we just relate with each other in a way that we don't have these these sorts of issues, which, you know, people go, oh, he's so wacky. Like, how could he think that? But I actually think that's, that's part of the vision of like, mm-hmm. you know, as a species, we just kind of figure things out. And, yeah. you know, we got there. Like, isn't wouldn't that be great if we got to that point where we figured it out and that's not something that we had to worry about anymore? But anyway, not at that point in the timeline. So it's it's moot, really. Yeah. Yes. I, uh, I, that sounds right to me. Like, I, I'm not, not as familiar with the Roddenberry as you are, but mm. I, I don't, I mean... Wasn't uh, Bones constantly? Um, yeah, that's exactly the thing. <laughs> like, did you did you ever watch the show? Like, it's all conflicts yeah. between Spock and McCoy. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, um, in spite of my insistence that it doesn't matter, I think the writers were deliberately lampshading it um, with, mm-hmm. like, Georgiou saying, "Yo." Note the date and time. My senior officers are actually agreeing with each other for once. Uh, 
Right. It's um, uh, clearly some some fourth wall winking of some sort, even if. Uh, and Michael Burnham matter. was sort of like uh, set up as being a little bit outside of uh, sort of Starfleet norms, having gone to the uh, Vulcan Science Academy. Yeah. Uh, as apparently, like instead of Starfleet Academy. Yeah, because well, obviously she wasn't a cadet when she showed up. Don't kind quite of a, get how that works, kind of, but kind of odd that you can uh, do do Vulcan Science Academy instead of Starfleet Academy. Still, be like I remember considered. Spock had the choice of which one he wanted to do, and he chose Starfleet Academy. Okay, but he had the choice within the context of his life on Vulcan. That doesn't necessarily speak to the implications for his Starfleet career, yeah. Necessarily, if he had selected the uh, Vulcan Science Academy, right? Um, but we don't know. I don't know. We just don't know. So at this point, we have the other uh, old school tech thing where they, they, there's an object of unknown origin that they spy, but the sensors can't lock onto it for whatever reason. So they just go to the captain's office and look at it through a telescope. Cute. Yeah. It's real I cute. I thought it was pretty cute. Um, yeah. And then uh, they get Burnham to go EV suit to, to check it out. Very hmm. uh, the motion picture style. Spock yeah. gets in the EV suit and does that huge boring sequence where he floats through like space sphincters <laughs> pretty great yeah i thought i thought it was i thought it was a pretty cool uh cool scene and it's something they that. never ever did in uh the next generation except for in like one movie i think yeah they they did ev in uh first contact i yeah i don't think yeah. there was any ev in the show um she gets up close to the the object and well what do you know it turns out it's a klingon ship and we we did see the the klingons a little bit before uh so we the audience know but unbeknownst unbeknownst to them knownst to us uh and she yeah uh she's a a xenoanthropologist um which uh is something that i don't think we've seen before in in uh trek but i think it's a it's a great it gives this character like a great way to convey perspective uh to us and i really appreciate that like the detail that went into the anthropology um uh of the series thus far Mm -hmm. yeah we haven't really uh gotten to klingon takes yet which i think are the most scorching of all the takes for this show uh, what did you think of the new Klingons? So the very first shot of the show is of a, a Klingon, and it's clear that the makeup was very clearly designed to hold up to very close scrutiny um, mm-hmm. in here. And it's, it certainly looks great. That's great. And um, wow, these Klingons talk in Klingon forever. Mm-hmm. Is these yeah. huge, long sequences. And it's kind of like, from a like kind of objective filmmaking standard, you might go, oh, maybe don't do that. Like, people won't like it. But then, from a Trekkie viewpoint, like, 
this is fantastic. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, these huge sequences of actors speaking in Klingon. That's 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 great. Yeah. I love it. Like, how could you not? Yeah, I I, I really like the whole treatment. I I, I mean, I, I understand all the um, canonicity complaints. But again, it comes for me, it comes back to that they're they're just doing something better than they could have otherwise. And mm-hmm. it, that comes not just back to like the special effects, which are, are amazing. Like they did a really good job with their costumes and the, mm-hmm. the makeup I think is really cool. Uh, but also just like the fact that they're like trying to sort of embody them more as an alien culture and really sort of uh, the, the sort of the stylistic choices in terms of like them talking to like their, the way they speak and the pronunciation and the fact that they're speaking Klingon, and the fact mm. that they have these like really exotic ships and act like like really clearly different than alien cultural cultural yeah. practices, uh, all works really and well. I think it's, it's just the only complaint is that it's not like it was before. Well, I, I mean, in my that's, like that's I think complaint. it's really really clear that there was like a a serious effort to to embed uh, the depiction of Klingons um, in in this series with canon because like this we were looking up things and it's like you know some of the house leaders that he talks to are from houses that later appeared in next gen and like and all like the deeper you go with this it's very clear that they like thought extremely long and hard about um you know canon with when it came to the details of of how they were going to do klingons so i i think the oh it's it's you know it doesn't fit with canon argument just doesn't really stack up yeah i i think that it not fitting with canon is very it's very superficial it's like they physically do not resemble yeah. what they used to resemble but it's like again that's that comes back to where do you draw the line it's mm-hmm. like the set of the um, USS Enterprise in Star Trek: The Next Generation to today's eyes looks like like some kind of like I don't know like a lobby in like in a, the Marriott a hotel. Yeah, yeah. It's like okay, if if you're gonna allow that to look dated, okay, what about the makeup of the alien? Uh, you know, it's like why is it okay for that to be completely updated or? be completely out of date looking but it's not okay for like the the a species to look out of date and be visibly updated mm. uh, unless you're just trying you know trying to pick a fight but we i ain't, we ain't I mean, about I that see both sides <laughs> um yeah there's, there's bad people on all sides also <laughs> <laughs> with regards to the cg i like people keep saying oh it looks great and all and like definitely a lot of it does look really great some of it i thought kind of looked a bit muddy i'm not sure if that was maybe mostly just my streaming connection talking but i i had difficulty like discerning details on like some of the klingon ship exteriors and 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 so forth mm-hmm. which I don't know, maybe if they were running low on budget or or maybe I'm just imagining it. Yeah, I didn't have any problems like that, but it's that I, I can't say that wasn't true. I I might just not have been paying attention. <laughs> right. Um so 
uh, poor old Burnham doesn't have a great time on the Klingon ship, and when she gets back to um, the Shenzhou, she wakes up in sickbay covered in hideous radiation burns, uh, and she nevertheless like stumbles out of sickbay and onto the bridge covered in these awful wounds, and uh, we get another, I guess, Roddenberry rule um, uh, lampshade where... Um, Captain Giorgio believes her first, her first officer when she says there's Klingons out there, even though, um, you know, they could they can't see the Klingons, they can't sense them, and the footage from her EV suit was corrupted, so they only have her word to go on, and she's concussed, but the captain believes her anyway, because you believe your first mm-hmm. officer. That's yeah. charming. And, of course, that's the, the point about this, is um, it's they're at the end of a seven-year mission. So we're coming into this series at the point at which a Star Trek series usually ends. You usually only get seven seasons. Yeah, that's true. Good point. So, yeah, so very clearly they've attempted to establish like a rapport among the crew members that that represents that kind of later season camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Which makes this sort of yeah. make sense. What did you, um, this is a completely, a completely random aside, but mm. are you familiar with the, um, uh, Daft Punk alien? Uh, no. There's a, uh, there's an alien on the crew that has like a robot. Oh, head. yes. Right. It looks like Daft Punk. Yeah. Do you know anything about that? That creature? Is that a robot? I or? mean, yeah, I was wondering exactly the same as you. Like, are we dealing with a a pre Sung android, or is this just someone with a helmet? I have no idea. Because that would be, I think that would be pretty severely canon breaking if we just had a random robot on the crew, like hundreds of years before uh, Commander Data. I guess it would depend on the sophistication of said robot. Like yeah, she, that's true. She, I think it's a she. She might just not be a very good robot. Yeah, it could just be just like, uh, like follows random right. or follows orders. Yes, doesn't no, have beep, a boop. consciousness. Hmm. Has has ethical subroutines, but uh, not a soul. Yeah. Alas. Um. So at this point, um, we start to get some of the, uh, anthropological. Um, reasoning hoops that that Burnham um, jumps through, which I think were very cleverly written, um, uh, but they kind of maybe approach the the point of where characters make decisions for reasons of plot rather than reasons of motivation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think maybe this is. Um, possibly the the multiple draft writers uh, shining through. I know that um, Akiva Goldsman did, uh, I think, some of the final polishing on the script, so that might be why it kind of holds together for me. It might be it might be his work. I don't know. But the, uh, the point is she gets them to point their guns at the Klingon coffin ship, even though there's no real reason for them to do that so that they draw yeah. the Klingons out. And this argument later gets extended to, oh, we should fire on them first because 
that's what Klingons under, understand, and you you'll be you'll actually be safer, even though it's counterintuitive, if you fire on them mm-hmm. first because they'll then respect you. Yeah, that's the uh, Vulcan hello. That is the that, the titular that, Vulcan hello. The titular Vulcan hello. Yeah. But it's only the Vulcan hello when it comes to Klingons. Right. Yeah. Which, um, gosh, thank goodness they didn't say hello to us that way. Right. Um, Poor Zephram Cochran wouldn't have survived it. <laughs> that, that would um, that would have been a downer. Mm-hmm. Too bad. Survived that nuclear war just to get zapped by a point pointy years guy. Yeah. Um, or that cool hat with the like metal divots in it. He could have like shot the jukebox and it would have just just kind of wound down be like Uh-oh. playing some classic rock tunes the only music that survived that kind jazz of, kind of like the postman in that yeah. regard kind of postman-esque mm-hmm. future anyway there's some klingons happening um so the the head klingon guy is called Tukuvma. And he wants Klingons to remain Klingon. But uh, at this point in the episode, we're meeting uh, his sidekick, who I think will turn out to be the Klingon lead for the series, who's an albino called Vok, son of Nun. Um, And he's like a a big zealot, and he puts his hand in the fire to prove his loyalty to Kalos. Uh, So clearly very scary boy. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like the uh, the John Snow, the uh, mm, the Klingons. I've never seen the the Game of Thrones, but I'll take your I'll take your word for well, it. Well, he's a he's famously a a bastard. So, I mean, oh. like I guess this guy's an orphan, so maybe that's a little different. But uh, it's it's like totally different. So, it's not a very good not a very good observation. Do better next time. Um, yeah, and. Uh, hey, you feel like some more anthropology? Because we get some. Um, uh, lieutenant Saru, is he a lieutenant? He must be a lieutenant. I think so. He gives a little uh, spiel about uh, how his species uh, was a, they evolved as prey. They were bred like to be eaten, and as a result, uh, he can sense the coming of death. Which I I think it's it's cute. Um, to show the way that people with different experiences have different perspectives, which is really mm-hmm. what a Star Trek sh- series should be showing. So I, yeah. I hope we get more of that sort of thing. Yeah, I'll be curious. I, like, I feel like that needs to be fleshed out more. Like, what are the actual implications of that? Like, what mm-hmm. what's actually going on on that planet? Like, because it, it doesn't... The way he describes it sounds a little bit like... Um, unscientific but like deliberately so like Mm. this is sort of like a folk understanding of like cast on his planet or something like that Mm -hmm. like there's no there's no such thing as like uh a planet without a food chain like that doesn't really make sense does it oh yeah but presumably he's meaning it it's it's not in the sense of like you know this eats this and this eats this and then the thing at the top gets eaten by the thing at the bottom it's more like mm-hmm. he's bred and this is his station and he gets eaten. I think I read somewhere like online some 
some kind of theory that I don't know how serious it was. It was like that maybe maybe they're like uh the, that species like er, all, like eradicated all life on the planet by accident like Oops. through e- e- ecological catastrophe so now they just have a, like they have to eat each other and they have some mm-hmm. kind of like caste based cannibalism which would uh, so that makes sense and that would also yeah that would that would gel with what he actually said um, yeah so speaking of um, uh, people with different experiences having different perspectives, we get some more uh, of this when uh, Captain Giorgio talks to an admiral via Star Wars hologram um, and Burnham shows up as well. And the admiral doesn't think much of her ethnographical analysis of the Klingons, uh, you know, being we should shoot on them uh, first because then they respect you. And he says, considering your background, I would think you would be the last person to make assumptions based on race, presumably referring mm-hmm. to her being a human who was um, raised by Vulcans, but obviously yeah. also lampshading the fact that she's a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the great thing that I thought about this scene is back in the day in Roddenberry Trek, if we'd had this scene, it would have been, the Admiral would have been like a woman or perhaps a person of color and the dissenting commanding officer on the ship would have been a white guy. So it would have been, yeah, Oh, true. how enlightened is this white guy? And it, Oh, it just goes to show you that anyone can be prejudiced really, you know, it's yeah. just, it doesn't matter. You're race blind. Um, but Trek seems to be uh, getting a bit more like, coherent and, and uh, thoughtful in, in its in its social statements now, I think, by making this admiral a, a white guy. Yeah. It's more directly admiral, re- reflecting the world. The admiral is played by um, Terry Serpico, mm-hmm. um, who he's in a show, another show, um, which is about um, the post office. Great. <laughs> it's like a it's like a procedural crime drama, but um, about mail fraud. And I think my like I I looked it up because mm-hmm. I watched it. I just happened to watch it like last weekend before uh, tra- uh, Discovery premiered. Yeah. So this guy was fresh in my mind. But that's uh, awful coincidental. Like the. <sighs> I think it's called the inspectors, uh-huh. but like the U.S. Post Office logo is like actually in the logo of the show, which makes me think like it might be officially sponsored by, funded Gee. by the post office. Wow! <laughs> but that's I couldn't find any evidence of that in like uh, on IMDb or anything like that. Is it like tongue in cheek at all? No, or it's like it's dead serious. Like very serious mail fraud. It was like, yeah, the they they do it's like they're in, they do like vignettes about different kinds of like fraud. Yeah. Uh, so one episode, one 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 uh, segment was about like insurance fraud, and there was mm-hmm. like this ring of people uh, that were that were like staging bus accidents, and then were working with like a lawyer to sue working with a doctor to like sort of take medical records 
and they this set is up ringing a bell for me. I'm not sure if <laughs> I mean, maybe good, I just know about this scam. Show. It's a good show. It sounds great. But, uh, but that guy, uh, uh, what did I say, Terry Sotoko? Yeah. Uh, he also, I mistake him uh, very readily, visually for. Um, oh shit! What's the guy's name? From Weird Weird Science. Oh, I'm uh, I'm not super down with those John Hughes movies. A bit before my time. Yeah, Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, he looks, okay. He, he looks like uh, the the current uh, aged aged up Anthony Michael Hall. Right. Very very similar, but I, I confuse those two. Terry Serpico and Anthony Michael Hall. Well, sounds like a, a great uh, appearance from a, a great postman. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm, now, oh, there's some nonsense about plasmatic filters, which I, I think it's just an excuse for them to dramatically light the set with white light. Um, like, you know, something blows up on the Klingon ship and it's like bright white and the filters can't filter it out. Mm-hmm. That's nonsense. Yeah. They could just turn the screen off. Right? Yeah. Just turn it off. Is it a window? Like a light switch. Just go click. Nifty little trick. Yeah. Um, uh, then at this point, uh, Burnham holograms Sarek and we learn about the Vulcan hollow, but we've already talked about that. Um, uh, oh, I think at this point there's a little tiny hint of lens flare, which, uh, I think they probably played down, uh, for this series because I, I, it clearly has a rep yeah, in Star Trek. It has like a certain connotation. Yeah. But it was it was tasteful, I think. It didn't get in the way. Um, and obviously, uh, Giorgio is not pleased with uh, Burnham's insubordination and her wanting to fire first on the Klingon ship. And then she does the neck pinch on Giorgio. Right. Which seemed to be like a little out of nowhere and a little bit overkill, wasn't it? A little bit, yeah. And also, I, do, I wasn't quite sure if this is physiologically possible, because I thought that the reason that the Vulcan neck pinch was the Vulcan net, neck pinch is because only Vulcans can do it because of their physiology. But they can, like, yeah, concentrate um, some guess, sort of energy not. in their fingers. But, yeah, humans can. Guess, guess anybody can do it. It's got to know where the uh, special nerves are. Yeah, I guess, like, it doesn't last very long, so maybe... Uh, when humans do it, it's less effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Giorgio gets to hold her at a phaser point. And she's going to be holding that phaser for a while, so her arms must be getting yeah. sore because uh, we, we move to episode two at this point. Right. That's the, uh, that's the cliffhanger. For yes. episode. I, I thought it was a little odd, like, the way they broke these two episodes up. It's clearly, like, a two-hour premiere. Mm. But they're framing it as two separate episodes. Yeah, like this, the second this part is, is basically kind of short. I think it's like thirty-seven minutes. Yeah. What's that? It, the second part is pretty short. I think it's like thirty-seven, thirty-six minutes. Yeah. So barely even a full episode. Um, but yeah, definitely like a um, encounter at Farpoint 
situation um, and presumably it was done this way so that people would watch the first half on CBS when they played it on the television and they go, yeah, gee, I have to get this streaming service. I can see how it ends. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I almost I almost feel like it was originally planned to be like a two part premiere, but they probably were like, hey, can we just call this two episodes? So it's not like we're playing half an episode on mm-hmm. on broadcast TV. But they did. That's exactly essentially what they did. They played half an episode on, on broadcast TV. Disappointed in you, Les. Come on. Yeah. So um, for ep two, uh, before we jump right back into the exit, the action, we we get a little flashback to uh, Burnham coming onto the ship, being like a very haughty Vulcan. Um, mm-hmm. And she, her costume in this scene seems really original series, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. It, Although like, she's like, not, she doesn't have a, like a mini skirt, does she? No, no. It looks like something that, um, like Amanda Grayson would have worn, Spock's mother. It it like just looks very much like the the sort of thing that uh, you know guest characters walked on, and they're wearing these like sci-fi dresses. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's she's very rude. Uh, her dad Sarek reminds her to be nice. Um, and. Oh, there's a little note that I had that when Sarek leaves, when he transports out, he's out of focus. And I think possibly this may be the first time in Star Trek where we see a transporter effect that's not in focus. Interesting note. You think so? Extremely interesting. Well, typically, yeah, it's it's what the shot is focusing on, right? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. You're, you're probably the, the only one to make this observation. Possibly. I think it's a good one. Thanks. Good one. See, that's I got original takes here on mm-hmm. Trek Trudge Discovery Disco Trek Trudge Disco Trudge Trudge Disco Disco Duck. Um, famous disco <clears throat> song called the Disco Duck. That's a that's gonna be the theme music, right? Um, so, um, Giorgio and uh, Burnham like are a bit rude to each other, but by the end of the turbo lift ride, they have kind of hit it off and revealed that they admire Mm -hmm. one another's records and, uh, just in time for them to get along with each other. We cut back to the present with Giorgio still holding her arm out. Um, and, Oh, I guess we've got to find some Klingons now. Burnham figures out that, well, there's 24 ships that arrive to back up the coffin ship and there's 24 Klingon houses. So maybe this means that Tukuvma is attempting to reunify the fractured Klingon empire. Yeah, makes sense. So I guess um, maybe now we should talk about the, the much vaunted political allegory. Oh, the, uh, the, the, the Trump? Yeah, make make Kronos great stuff? again. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, did you think that was on the nose? Uh, I thought it was going to be more on the nose, based on what I had heard about it. Yeah, I uh, didn't. I didn't think it was on the nose. I thought it was fine. 
yeah i did i did it didn't didn't strike me as that much of a a parallel i mean it's not new mm. it's not a new phenomenon certainly and uh, i um had heard people complain that oh well why aren't the klingons an analogy for isis like surely isis yeah. would be a great and in the show they they kind of are as well yeah and like terrorism is explicitly brought up uh a few times and it's it's klingon terrorism so clearly you know we can have more than one metaphor yeah um, i mean i think there's a better tie either like you said to, to isis or just to the general anti-globalization movement but not the trump component of that movement in particular it's like yeah. as much brexit as it is trump right yeah if well they're they're definitely not uh friendly to strangers to foreigners in this here little klingon sect um mm-hmm. so you know we get a little scene with like oh all the houses put all their holograms up and it's like oh, how dare you like what or you try to you 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 would reunite us how would you do this you are you're a whelp and mm-hmm. i thought that one of the female klingons in this scene she sounded familiar to me so i thought maybe she might have been a returning klingon from like a previous uh trek production turns out she's not um she's uh a character called denas but she's from the house de gore which is a, a house that later appears in TNG. So, you know, canon. Linked yeah. Canon. Good. The good actress's research. name was. Well researched. Yes. The actress's name was Claire McConnell, also. That's that. I guess it's like. I guess like. There's only like so many like female Klingon voices out there. Yeah. I think. Uh, in the end, my take is just if you're wearing the teeth, then it gives you the sound. Yeah, similar to the the Ferengi. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. Uh. So Giorgio holograms the Klingons after they're done talking to each other, and clearly isn't uh, you know speaking their language so to speak because they uh, they fire and right. So the Klingons she even fire says first. we come in peace. Yeah, just like this is the meme line now that the Klingons hate that humans say. Yeah, there's a movie called "I Come in Peace," starring um, Dolph Lundgren. Well, that's um, that's good. It's about a um, an alien that comes to Earth that said keeps saying i come in peace but he actually kills people with like um some kind of what appears to be like a com- compact compact disc launcher is he portrayed by dolph lundgren no um he plays like the human the, hero uh, yeah dolph lundgren is the uh, the human hero of the story who saves the day um, with violence right yeah for some reason, when I click on the link to the movie, it says Dark Angel. Oh, that's um, something different. Yeah, but it, it seems like Google Google's algorithm broke for me somehow because 
or maybe it's it's possible that it goes by two titles. It's possible. I thought Dark Angel was a James Cameron television series. Well, that's that's true too, but this appears to also be a Dolph Dolph Lundgren movie. Um mm-hmm. which uh perhaps is also called uh I Come in Peace. Uh, but that's a, a story for another day. <laughs> in in this universe of stories um, Burnham is now in the brig and a poor concussed ensign stumbles in thinking it's the sick bay and very quickly the deck gets blown up and he gets sucked into space, which is too bad, really. Yeah. Um, it wasn't clear to me why he would have, how he would have made that mistake. Like, I thought he was seeking her out specifically. Uh, I think it's uh, maybe to tell us something about her character because she doesn't... Um, try to get him to help her escape. She doesn't, like, take advantage of a concussed man. Mm-hmm. She tells him to try and get himself to sickbay. But he, he dies. Right. Um, and then she has a flashback when the deck blows up to when Sarek saved her in the aftermath of a terrorist attack on the Vulcan Learning Center. Which... I don't know if that's the the moment that he adopted her. Uh, like, I I thought that he had adopted her in the wake of like her parents being killed in an attack, but I guess maybe that wasn't this attack. So there's more than one attack. Yeah, I, I don't know. That wasn't clear to me either. Not clear. And oh, we get a, we get another reference. Um, so Saru cites the deck breaches in the same way that Demora Sulu does in Star Trek Generations when James Kirk is sucked off of the Enterprise B. So it, he cites the deck that Burnham is on, uh, like in the knowledge that that was the deck that she was on. So presumably she is she is dead. Right. But it's okay. She's fine. Very um, similar. Mm, now, this is maybe another questionable element. I don't know. It was a little unclear. So it's revealed at this point that Burnham and Sarek share a special like space connection because of the mind mm-hmm. meld that he did with her after the terrorist attack. Yeah. It's sort of unclear what the exact nature of the link is. And I think there's like a... a more questionable interpretation of it and there's a more plausible one like so when he melds with her a little bit of his katra goes into into her so it's plausible that he could just be in her head and talking Mm -hmm. to to her through that bit in her head there but then it also seems to imply that they have like a link across time and space which is a bit more questionable Maybe, uh, but that might also explain how she was able to do the uh, the neck pinch. Maybe he imbued her with his his katra hey, and maybe. gave him gave her some uh, some Vulcan powers. Bitten by a radioactive Vulcan. Yeah. Um, I guess airtight. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I thought maybe like it's an entangled particles thing that would seem to be the way that you would justify it, but uh, it's just yeah. You know, I hope they don't kind go of there. like uh, just like you can kind of wave your hand and say um, quantum, 
physics. It's quantum. It's quantum. Yeah. Uh, we're you dealing with quantum. Heard about string theory? I'm going to be. I'm going to be the one to tell you about string theory. Okay. Because you probably haven't heard of it yet. Yeah. No, I haven't heard of it. Um, yeah. It's string theory. <laughs> so it's strings that connect them across space and time. Mm-hmm. And that's the theory. Uh, Through eleven so, dimensions. Oh, eleven. That's more than usual. But I'm 11, down with that what because you said that it's a theory. Mm-hmm. You don't even understand what the fifth dimension would be. So how could you comprehend the eleventh? I can't even conceive. The fourth dimension is time, James. Oh, see, that's helpful to know. Um, so, uh, oh, the, the smart white guy, Admiral, who's really good at his job and everything, um, he negotiates a ceasefire with the Klingons and he, he tractor beams the Shenzhou with his ship, the Europa. So what luck looks like all our troubles are over, right? Um, but, um, yeah, this may be the first instance of a ship with a cloaking device in canon, I think maybe don't really know, don't really care either, but, uh, it, it, it rams the Europa and just completely wrecks its shit. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the Admiral basically eats shit and dies and, um, self-destructs his ship. Just like happens in a particularly dark episode of the postal inspectors. There's a, there's an episode with self-destructing. That's Maybe he gets a letter, a package from the Unabomber. Oh no, that would be a real sad male-based interlude to experience. Mm-hmm. <sighs> a touch anachronistic, but <laughs> such evil for the good that of the story. Do to each other. <laughs> um. So, so why did they ram the ship for fun? Why would just just for like a like a spectacular 911 style display yes cuz okay. you know the ship can i think cuz it's kind of shaped like an icebreaker yeah not sure how plausible that is but it's okay yeah like what would stop it from just pushing the other ship um they're in space i could probably push the other ship there's no well, Gravity. It's um uh there's a word for this. It's a it's a wedge. So it's a great deal of force applied to narrow surface area. Yeah, but there's no resistance on the other ship. Yes, there's nothing to push back. Inertia. But it's isn't it stationary? Well, inertia implies whether you're stationary or in motion. But it's like stationary in space. Yeah, so when you push you it, grab it, it will move, but it will resist that movement. Right. I see. Mm. I'm not sure if I get it. <laughs> it's it's going to be all right. We can um, uh, move on to the next bit, where Tukuvma mm-hmm. delivers a threatening screed to the surviving Federation fleet. Yeah. Um, nothing to say about that. But Burnham, in the meantime, is doing some classic uh, Star Trek arguing with the computer to 
kind of out logic it, which is mm-hmm. is great. Gets it to um, set her free in accordance with its ethical protocols. Yeah. Because it has to keep her alive, but it doesn't have to release her unless it, you know, it has to in order to keep her alive. Right. I read some uh, criticism of this. Yes. Sort of like, why would the um, computer, like, like it seems like the the ethical protocols are kind of faulty or something. But mm-hmm. I actually thought it was. I thought it was good. I thought it was like, it sort of got it delved into the complications of sort of having to think through ethical, non-sentient, uh, what's the word? I guess, I guess ethical computers, ethical artificial intelligence, I guess is the, the question here. It's like, it's clearly imperfect. So it's needing to be reasoned with because it's, it's difficult to program mm -hmm. every contingency into (laughs) it. Yeah. Um, and furthermore, it's just a classic genre feature. Like, you know, there's that episode where, like, I think Kirk blows up a computer by convincing it that a contradiction is true. Mm-hmm. It's just like that. It's great. But I, but I, but I think it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. And so much it gets into sort of like modern questions of sort of the ethical nature of artificial intelligence, particularly yeah. starting to arm autonomous self-driving car should drive you off the cliff. Right. And it, and it's like, I, and there are like, like particularly in the context of her being a, a prisoner, it's like, it also gets a little bit into like, you know, prisoners, rights. Mm-hmm. Like famously during Hurricane Katrina, a bunch of prisoners were abandoned to drown in their cells. And clearly whomever made the decision to abandon that, um, prison, mm-hmm clearly made the wrong ethical decision where they basically sentenced all these you know people to die yeah for a range of probably petty crimes because Mm -hmm. you know he he, in the the moment in that moment weighed releasing criminals against the alternative leaving them to drown in a cell and chose let's let them die and and it's maybe not that clear to the computer either what to do in that situation but Burnham convinced it to do the right thing. Good job. Mm-hmm. This is one of the times where she's really smart. Um, so Lieutenant Saru uh, has got a plan to detonate warheads on the Klingon ship. I think their torpedoes are broken, but they can transport them. So that's okay. But mm-hmm. Burnham doesn't want to do it because she doesn't want Takuvma to become a martyr. Um, because then, you know, it'll just go on forever. Yeah, we, um, we all we all know that if you if you cut off the head of the snake, then the body of the snake dies. I love when that trope is like raised unironically, particularly in mm-hmm. post nine eleven contexts. Yeah, that seldom appears to be the case. It happens. Like there was a Voyager episode, I think. Yeah, Re- really bad. But anyway, that's that's not what it is here. They they have the other one. They think the other way that it's uh, you don't want martyrs. But if you can capture Takuvma, then instead of being a symbol of you know martyrdom, he'll be a, a symbol of failure and weakness because mm-hmm. he was captured by the Federation. And furthermore, that they can you they could use him as a bargaining chip. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's at this point that she says the line to Georgiou, I believed saving the crew was more important than Starfleet's principles in reference to the Starfleet mm-hmm. doesn't fire first. I think this, we can clearly see where her character arc is going. I, I think it's pretty obvious that Captain Lorca on the Discovery is going to want to do something questionable in order to win the war against the Klingons. And he's going to say to her, well, isn't this what you wanted? Didn't you want to protect Federation lives, you know, at, at any cost? Isn't it more important? And she's going to realize all of a sudden that, oh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the, or the needs of the few, whatever it is at that yeah. point. And, yeah. and full circle, sunrise, mm-hmm. sunset. Did you it's see not that? clear um, why she couldn't have just leveled with um, the uh, the captain and said, "Hey, uh, Sarek told me this would be a good idea." Do you think <laughs> that would have me. flown? Like she might not have cared very much what Sarek thinks. Yeah, that's true. But still, it's like. She's presenting this as something that she just came up with. Um, and it's like, hey, Vulcans do this all the time. This might be, that might be a compelling argument to try it. But she, doesn't, she, she just doesn't mention that. She did mention the historical context, didn't she? Did she? Maybe I'm um, forgetting. I think, I think she did, where uh, the Vulcan ship learned uh, from one mistake... If you don't fire first on the Klingons, they fire on you and they kill you. Okay. And yeah. from then on, Vulcan ships say that. fire first in encounters with the Klingons, and thus uh, they're, they're safer. The Vulcan, hello. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I guess it's worth repeating at this point that this is this is great anthropological stuff, and I love it. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, it's good. It's counterintuitive and it's relating to you know different cultures with different perspectives it's really great hope we get more of this it's not totally clear what would have actually happened if they had fired first exactly yeah no um you could still die i suspect it would have turned out that differently which i think it might have been better if somehow we knew that it would have turned out differently Mm. but like the Klingons were, were itching for a fight. Yeah, they still we, had all the same based guns. on their plan. Uh, they, you know, they wanted to, to battle. That just would have been a, for even a better justification. So, I think I think it was a little bit of one sided discussion in terms of basically what we knew versus what the uh, what the the Starfleet crew knew yeah. at the time. Um. Well, uh, enough enough philosophy. Let's beat up some Klingons. Um, so they decide to do the plan with the bomb, but I think they must have like aimed it at a non-essential part of the ship or something, and presumably that was to get the shields down so that they could beam uh, their away team in. Of course, yeah. the two most senior officers are the ones that volunteer <laughs> for this suicide mission. So Can I just say it? I thought the uh, the scene that led to this, where the, yeah. the Klingons were sort of reclaiming their dead from space, was pretty mm. cool, and not sort of like sort of an example of the kind of thing that you just it probably 
would have been harder to do in older versions of Trek, mm. uh, just in terms of the the special effects involved. Yeah. Um, it was pretty kind of kind of a cool touch. Yeah, you don't get a lot of zero G in old Trek because without CG, it's just difficult to achieve. Yeah, like overall, I think this this series has done a good job of actually getting sort of the the sense of scale of the uh, the ships, their like their size proportion mm. of the people and sort of having a little, little bit of a more sense of reality that they're actually human beings and giant ships in space and not mm. sort of like a you know static shot of ship and then other shot of unrelated interior that we just have to take on faith is <laughs> part of the ship right. and they also did this pretty well with like the big holes big holes being ripped in the ship and yeah sort of seeing space outside having those holes filled with to with um tie one to the other inside to the out yeah um these are just random sides mm, yeah yeah certainly one of the successes with which we are dealing uh so the the two go over of course they have a bit of a fight um i thought was interesting um michelle Yeoh is of course renowned as being a martial arts star so i kind of expected perhaps a little more from this scene it seemed like almost a bit of a basic fight scene that she had mm -hmm. with Takovma. and uh so Giorgio is killed at any rate um, i would i would bet you that there was a conversation about that yeah. and that they decided against it for sort of cultural reasons like there's this sort of stock uh trope that all all Asians, all Asians know karate so like, oh, of course, this Asian captain's going to go in and start doing like flips and kicks and stuff. And even though they happen to have an actress that could have done that yeah. very well, they probably decided like, um, that she probably doesn't know. Oh. The character doesn't know karate. I mean, I like to think that there, there would have been a way for, I mean, yeah, now that I think about it, when she was in Tomorrow Never Dies back in 1997, it was very clearly a case of, all Asians know Kung Fu. And mm -hmm. so she did the Kung Fu and that it was very good Kung Fu. It was good, good sequences, but yeah, that, that is, that is right now that I think about it. Um, but still I, I, while the fight scene is like clearly very physical and I think it's her in some of the shots, unless they did some hardcore face replacement. Um, mm -hmm. I, 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 would have liked to see something slightly more elaborate, but anyway, yeah, uh, she dies. She she gets through through the chest with the mm -hmm. with the batleth, and I guess Tukovma is killed in in the same fight because he dies a bit later as well. Um, yeah, um, Michael shoots Tukovma. Oh um, right, which I, I thought was odd because they had initially planned to try to. Capture. capture him yeah and it seemed like an opportunity to stun him and then beam him out which instead she just opted to kill him perhaps her emotions got in the way right but i mean that that's that could be the case but it wasn't addressed at all like it didn't seem like they had even considered it a possibility that mm. she could get him off that ship it's possible that, that we'll I grapple with it later maybe um, because presumably like this 
this incident does have consequences for the rest of the series because now yeah. Tukovma does become the martyr and Lieutenant Vok takes up the mantle of his legacy and will presumably be the villain of the series. Mm-hmm. I heard, by the way, that the Klingon War is going to take up the first season only. Okay. Like, they, they've made a choice to kind of start with this and have it be kind of serialized, but also they want to get to just, like, classic track stuff starting okay. season two. Well, we'll see. We shall. Sounds great. Yeah, by all means. Um, and we get, uh, I think, one more scene after this where Burnham is uh, charged and convicted of, of her her dereliction of duty and, and sentenced to a, a surprisingly harsh life sentence. Yeah. Pretty, I mean... Pretty harsh. I would have thought, under the circumstances, like, you know... 20 years max, surely? Well, maybe it, maybe it's a life sentence, but it's a life sentence with a minimum of 20 years. Yeah. Which is we don't really know what the, uh, like, the appeals process or the, like, like uh, good behavior or those kinds of rules are mm. in this, at this point. I mean, it is, a, it is a pretty serious offense to, like, attack your commanding officer. Mm. Um, in any timeline or, you know, particularly, you know, like a regimented, uh, yeah, like, uh, I guess they're not like a military organization, but they, they are sort of, um, uh, staffed like one. Yeah. I guess just like she didn't premeditatedly murder anyone, which seems like it would rule out a life sentence to me. It's like. Well, maybe she endangered the lives of the crew on the, but she merely endangered them. Like you don't get, you don't get sent yeah. to prison for life. But I mean, I think I think the comparison is that like you would probably be like executed for something like this in in many many other contexts. Right in like, ye olde like, times, and, or even maybe now I don't I don't. So, yeah, they, didn't, they didn't send Chelsea Manning for life. Yeah, that's true, but like. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but she's clearly she not going to stay in Vulcan prison ne- anyway. Ne- neck yeah. pinch it, buddy. She'll be it's fine. Different. It's really, yeah, different. Yeah. yeah, and she's killing it on Twitter too. So Michael Burnham is, or um, Sonequa Martin Green, Chelsea, Chelsea Manning. Oh, Chelsea Manning is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she's doing great now. Um, The part that makes me gladdest about that is that she got out and got to have a real haircut so that the photos of her floating around now aren't that awful photo with the wig. Yeah, that's true. It's just like, oh, what a relief. The Halloween store wig. Yep. Good job, so, um, looks like the next episode is going to be where we're going to actually meet the real crew mm. of the series with um, a new captain, a very much 
alive captain played by um Jason Isaacs. Jason Jason Isaacs. Yeah. Who was also um Lucius Malfoy? Lucius Malfoy, yes. Yeah. And so, uh Bad presumably, the Patriot. Yeah, he'll be able to probably do some uh some magic spells. Yep, that's a classic Trek element. <laughs> well, you know, technology uh sort of can resemble magic too hmm. if it's sufficiently advanced. That's that's, that's what they say. Yeah. Truly wise. So, James, overall, are you in or out on Star Trek Discovery? Byron, I'm so in. And I'm in. Let me just say, this kicks the shit out of the Orville. Yeah. I think that, that trope where the Orville is more Trek than Trek at this point uh, predates the premiere of both shows. Yeah. And people are just sticking to it just because it's a fun troll thing to say. <laughs> and all, I mean, the, in, in all the ways in which it's true are just because the or- Orville did as much as it could deliberately be as much like Star Trek The Next Generation as it possibly yep. could. I mean, come on. To the it's extent really of, not... of being a basically a stale, reanimated corpse. Right. Rather With than a new, fresh show. Strangely interspersed moments of coarse humor, um, rendering it overall tonally wildly inconsistent. Yeah. Now, you I will said say, you watched episode three. Yeah, which I enjoyed, and I, I, I am going to continue watching. You are going to stick with it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think it's silly to say that it's better than mm. this, this than Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. Say what I, you feel about the, uh, the format. Choices mm. that they've made. That's I, I am a, going to an stick. Executive decision. Right. I'm going to stick with this discovery. I'm not going to stick with the Orville. Um, did, we actually went through this whole thing without really doing a hot take on CBS All Access, I think. Should we just keep yeah. it that way? Yeah. I, think so. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that you, you get it on um, Netflix, right? Yeah, I do. So it's like watching House of Cards. Couldn't be easier. Yeah. So. It's really, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I suspect that it's it's potentially temporary. I think it's a bad idea overall. Mm. Like, I think, come on, like, who, who thinks it's a good idea? No, nobody likes paying Les for anything. Les does. <laughs> exactly. Les thinks it's great. I mean, I, I think that there is a possibility out there, floating out there somewhere, that there is something good that could evolve from these kinds of moves being made for in mm-hmm. mass. Uh, but that's only with comparison yeah. to like what, I mean, cable, cable, cable is yeah. sort of untenably expensive at this point. And if that could somehow be replaced with more a la carte niche packages that aren't completely limiting in terms of access to certain programs that could be good, uh, around you know, but it, it might take some time to evolve into whatever that final form is. Well, gosh, Byron, I don't think we can say that we have avoided that particular hot take now. Because yeah. I think you've just well, we can just cut it. it off there. All right, that's enough. I'm just going to say it's, it's overwhelmingly positive, a good move. I'm glad people have to pay for it. I hope Wonderful. they suffer. <laughs> 
I can say personally that I can afford it. So it's fine. Fine with me. It's fine. <laughs> Great. Okay. Uh, well, James, any closing thoughts before we, uh, we uh, close the book on the first two episodes of Star Trek Disco? Yeah, I'll just say that I'm looking forward to seeing you again next week, audience. Yep, tune in for uh, some more Trek. Trek Trudge. Catch you next time. Ciao. See you later. Bye, James. Goodbye. Good night.